Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, January 21st, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Have you ever wandered through an art gallery and thought to yourself, huh, my kid could have painted that. What makes art art? Well, it turns out there's a scientist for that. Ellen Winner is a professor of psychology at Boston College, and she's a senior research associate at Project Zero, which is in the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She directs the Arts and Mind Lab, and her career has been all about figuring out why we love art that we do, what makes art art, and essentially how art works. She has recently put together all of this information into a new book called How Art Works, a psychological exploration that is now available at booksellers everywhere. This is a topic, of course, that I'm very passionate about, given my background in both music and psychology. And so I was delighted to chat with Ellen Winner to figure out how art works. Ellen Winner, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So I want to start out with the question that you start out your book with, which is, what is art? And of course, your entire book in essential, in essentially is an answer to that question. Um, but let's start with, uh, with, with when you are posed that question, what, it, what do you say? Well, what I say is that philosophers have been debating that question for centuries and have not reached any agreement. There has been an attempt to find uh, necessary and sufficient features of an object that would allow us to determine whether it is or it is not art. But it turns out that every time people come up with a list of necessary and sufficient features, somebody comes up with an exception. So my own view is that Morris White's philosopher is correct when he says that art is an open concept because artists are continually expanding what we count as art by doing art that doesn't really look like art to us. And then it goes in museums and we have to consider it art, whether or not we like it. Um, but also, um, I am very persuaded by what the philosopher Nelson Goodman has said, which is, yes, anything can be art. It can function as art, but that same object can function as non-art. And the critical difference is how we respond to it. If we start paying attention to the surface properties of an object, we start looking at it aesthetically. If we just look right through an object to what it represents, 
then it's not functioning as art for us. And he gives us a, wonder, a wonderful example of a zigzag line. Imagine that this is a cardi, an electrocardiograph. All that matters is the ups and the downs of the line, how far up they go, how far down they go, et cetera. And it doesn't really matter the texture, the color of the line, the composition the line creates on the page. None of that is relevant. And the same information could be carried in a set of numbers. But imagine that that same line is in a um, landscape painting, and it's the outline of a mountain in a Japanese ink and brush painting. Then all of a sudden, you start looking at the surface features, the quality of the line itself, and don't just look through it to what it represents. And then it starts functioning aesthetically. So I might, to, to sum up, art is an open concept. Anything can be art, but not everything functions as art for us. It depends on how we approach it, how we respond to it and look at it. So that's an interesting concept that you bring up, uh, uh, this idea of aesthetics. And I feel like that too is another thing that's hard to define. <laughs> it's very hard to define, yes. I mean, aesthetics used to be a branch of philosophy and it had to do with beauty. What is beauty? What gives us pleasure? And um, in the end of the 19th century, aesthetics also became part of psychology. The first experimental psychologists started doing work on the psychology of aesthetics. And what they meant by that is not what is beauty, but what do ordinary people find beautiful? So it was all, it was all focused on beauty and pleasure. While philosophers mused about the nature of beauty and speculated and argued about it, empirical psychologists began to say, and began to ask ordinary people what things they found beautiful. And they did this by presenting people with very stripped down stimuli, like a curved line versus a jagged line, or a light blue versus a dark blue, or a loud tone versus a soft tone. And these stimuli, the people gave very reliable answers to these. And we have a huge amount of information about what people prefer. But to go from these very stripped down stimuli to what people find beautiful in complex works of art is a big stretch. So that's not what psychologists who focus on aesthetics are doing today. The best ones are focusing on big philosophical questions about the arts rather than very small questions about what people prefer. I think that's one criticism that is often lobbed at psychologists that, you know, we take the fun out of whatever it is that we're studying, you know, by by reducing it to just components that sort of strip it from its value. Uh, and it sounds like this sort of new psychology of aesthetics is is really taking that into consideration. Yes. You know, this is the criticism that you hear of, for instance, uh, anybody that wants to analyze a poem. Are you ruining the poem by analyzing it? Does literary criticism kill the joy of literature? Well, you get the same kind of comments about bringing art into the laboratory. And sometimes the criticism is valid, as in the kinds of experiments I just mentioned to you where you're using very reduced stimuli and it becomes not very interesting. But Many psychologists who study the arts now are not doing this. They are looking at people's responses to real works of art so that we can make a leap from what we find in the laboratory to what we think may be going on when people are in a concert hall or at a museum. Um, but every time a psychologist does an experiment, there's a certain amount of reduction because we have to quote unquote operationalize a very ugly word, but we have to operationalize our stimuli so that 
everybody gets exactly the same kind of stimulus to respond to. And that always that always requires a certain amount of reductionism. There's just no way around that. Yeah, it's been kind of my experience with a lot of the early studies in particular of the genetics of musical ability, for example, where the tests of musical ability became very perceptual. You know, can you tell whether this chord is correct or not? And to me, that that really has very little to do with music, uh, the sort of the magic of music. But I, I totally agree with you that uh, as we've become more sophisticated in terms of the tools that we have at our disposal to study these things, the questions have become more and more interesting. And, you know, it kind of made me wonder if if in this era that we are entering of big data, um, you know, is, is that going to be something that actually will be quite a boon for this kind of work? Because, you know, people are very subjective in terms of their relationship with art. So you need a very large sample size uh, to, to, you know, see even, you know, a small effect. Well, I think that big data is going to be very useful for all psychological studies. And I wanted to mention that there is a researcher named Sam Mayer, who's been who's a researcher of music, and he has used big data to make some really interesting discoveries about um, the functions of song all over the world in all kinds of cultures, including primitive cultures that are less touched by Western influences than most cultures. And he's discovered that there are universalities in people's ability to recognize the function of what they're hearing, whether it's a lullaby, whether it's a march, whether it's a, uh, a mournful song all over the world. And he's got a huge database here. So he's really using big data. There is a universality in the ability to match form to function. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, a lot of, um, uh, psychologists have sort of wanted to figure out what it was about music that elicited a particular response, say like, you know, as a minor key, always going to make people feel sad and so forth. And and they haven't been able to really show that cross-culturally. There's, as you said, there's always one person who's going to come with an exception. There has been an attempt to answer that question by going to um, isolated tribes and looking at whether they respond to mode in the in the traditional way of minor is sad and major is happy. Um, and somebody named Thomas Fritz went to the Cameroon and studied a, a group called the Mafa, and they did report that the Mafa, who had never been exposed to Western music, heard the major as happy and minor as scared, not sad, but scared. And this was kind of puzzling because Western children do not get this association until about age six, which suggests that it's due to exposure. But then when I looked really carefully at their data, because they supply their supplemental materials in their publication, you can see that the MAFA are a lot less correct than Westerners. And they really were only okay on happy. They weren't really significantly above chance on on minor. Um, they were, I mean, on sad or scared, they could hear the major is happy. The other thing is that mode is often confounded with tempo because the minor mode is played more slowly. So it is possible that they were using tempo to judge emotion, which would mean that they really were not using major and minor. And it's just not clear whether or not it's innate or whether it's learned because the data on the cross, the cross-cultural data is just not clear enough yet. 
Yeah. So, so I like this idea of, of, okay, well, let's maybe not, maybe, maybe emotions are too specific to culture and in the way that we label them, for example, but this idea that, that music has a function uh, and that that is more easily grasped across cultures is really interesting to me. Yes. And that's, that's the work of Sam Mayer, who's a brilliant young psychologist of music. Yeah. So what is, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about sort of the definition of art uh, and, you know, how, how this idea of function comes in. Um, we haven't yet talked about what I uh, think is, and, and what, you know, I, I think you will agree since I read your book and I know a little bit about what you think <laughs> um, is the other part of this, which is that, you know, art is social uh, that, that, you know, this, there is at least a, a, a sort of a, a person who, consumes the art and a person who creates the art. So I want to talk a little bit about that and uh, the importance of the social side in terms of deciding what is art and what is perhaps good art. Okay, well, art is definitely a communicative signal. Art is a communication from the artist to the audience. And the audience is always thinking about what the artist intends. And we read intentionality, whether we read it correctly or not, we do read intentionality in art. And when we look at a work of art that is by an animal, because psychologists have done things, crazy things like put uh, paintbrushes into the trunks of elephants and let them uh, move the paintbrush around on a piece of paper and then they take it away when they think it looks good. Uh, Not the elephants, the experimenters take it away. If people are told it's art by an elephant, it, it just appears a lot more random. And it turns out that even when people aren't told, it appears more random. So, And people can recognize the difference between art by great humans, artists, and art by artists, art by animals, even if they look very similar. Uh, because I think, because we perceive the work by the animals as less intentional. So the perception of intentionality turns out to be very important in our deciding whether something is great art or whether even something is art. There was a study done by somebody named Jucker, and he showed that if you give people an out-of-focus photograph and you tell some people this was an accident, the photographer forgot to focus his or her camera, and you tell the other group this was done on purpose because the photographer felt that this would make the colors leap out more, and people were asked to rate how much this is a work of art. What Give it an artness score. In the intentionality condition, people gave it higher artness scores, which tells us that people think that art has to be something that somebody is doing intentionally. Yeah. And in fact, there's a, there's a a sort of analogous study in, uh, for, for music where people were told that a particular piece of music was, you know, composed by a computer or a human being. Um, and it was actually a a neuroimaging study. And and we saw uh, parts of the brain that we know are involved in sort of understanding theory of mind, um, sort of more active during the, the, playing of music that people thought was composed by a human versus a computer. So, you know, just in terms of how people consume art, uh, that changes drastically depending on what they think is the intention that the artist is, is trying to portray. Yes, absolutely. And this brings us to the question of when people are looking at art that they know or that they are told is a forgery. Um, actually, it activates different areas of the brain than when they're looking at that same image being told that it's an original. As soon as you're told it's a forgery, well, I, I don't have any uh, evidence about theory of mind being activated differentially, um, though that would be really interesting to look at. But people, the the um, mo- 
area of the brain that processes uh, reward, particularly monetary reward, is suddenly activated when people are looking at a forgery, something they believe to be a forgery. So your belief about what you're looking at and who made it and when it was made and how it was made critically affect our response to the work and therefore our evaluation of the work. We don't just look at the end product. And you know that gets back to a quote that uh, you start your, your book off with, which is this idea that art isn't uh, about an experience. It is an experience. Right. It is an experience. And it art does something to us so that when we are responding to work of art, we're having a very different kind of experience from when we're responding to things in our real life. I, I, I hate to say real life as if art isn't part of our real life, but when we're responding to interpersonal situations and not to a work of art, we may feel similar kinds of emotions. Like we may feel sad or happy from a work of art. And we, of course, feel sad and happy in our non-art lives. But the quality of that feeling really differs depending on whether we believe that we're feeling that emotion from art, where we don't have have to take any action. We can just savor the emotion versus when we know it's happening in our actual lives and we might have to act on it. So, I mean, it seems totally irrational that people will pay hundreds of millions of dollars for an original work of art and, you know, a, com- a completely perfect forgery has essentially zero value. Right. That is very fascinating question and philosophers have spilled a lot of ink on that. The phenomenon that interested us in my lab, the Arts and Mind Lab, was why is it that when you look at a painting and you think it's great and you respond very powerfully and then it's outed as a forgery and all of a sudden the painting doesn't look good anymore. It's not like it still looks the same and you experience it the same, but you think it's not worth any money. It actually doesn't feel great anymore. And this suggests to me that our knowledge or our beliefs about how the work was made and the mind that made it powerfully influence our response to the work of art. We tried to get at this by showing people two identical images, just by, we showed them on uh, works of, of art on a computer screen and we simply copied the work of art so that two works, two identical images were shown side by side. And we told them that the first image was the first of 10 identical images created by an artist in a series of 10. And then we told them that the second one, the one on the right, we didn't use the word copy or anything. We just said, and the one on the right was created either by the artist himself, the second in the series of 10, that was one condition, or by the artist's assistant, and we assured people that the artist's assistant was doing something that was legal and moral and acceptable, that many artists have their assistants help them on their works, um, and that the, art, the work by the artist, by the assistant, was worth the same amount as the first one by the artist. And then there was a third condition where the work was created by a forger. And we told them that, and, and we also told them that it wasn't worth as much. So we asked people to rate the one on the right compared to the one on the left on a whole variety of dimensions, like how beautiful is it? How much do you like it? How creative is it? How original is it? And we weren't particularly interested in how people rated the forgery because forgery has so many things going against it. It's immoral. 
because somebody's being defrauded, somebody's being deceived, and it's also worthless on the art market, as you said. So what we were we were really interested in was the artist's assistant condition, because there you don't have immorality, and you don't have um, financial worthlessness. Would people still care? And it turned out that people did. People prefer the copy by the artist to the copy by the artist's assistant. But note that nobody was asked to make that comparison themselves. One group compared the copy by the artist to the original, and one group compared the copy by the assistant to the original. And our measure was the extent to which either each one was disfavored relative to the original. And the copy by the assistant was disfavored more than the copy by the artist. And what that tells us, I believe, is that there really is something irrational going on, and it has to do with essentialism. The belief that when artists create their works, they're imbuing part of their essence into the work. And when you're looking at a work of art, you're looking at, you're communing with the mind of the artist. And you don't want to commune with the mind of a copier. You want to think you're shaking hands with the, the great master. And it's as if an analogy that I like is a wedding ring analogy. If you lose your wedding ring, you can get a perfect replica. And it can even be worth the same amount because it's made out of the same kind of gold. But it's not the same to you because it doesn't have the essence of the time and the place when you first put it on. And I think that's going on with forgery. We got at forgery by looking at copies, but a copy, even if it's worth the same, and even if it's not immoral, it doesn't have the artist's essence in it. And that's what we want when we look at a work of art. We want to, to feel that we're looking, that we're talking to the mind of the artist. If you love digging in deep into topics that interest you, that's what The Great Courses is all about. The Great Courses offers in-depth digital video courses from top experts who are not only extremely knowledgeable, but so passionate about their subjects. You can keep the courses forever. Watch them anytime, anywhere. And here at Inquiring Minds, we recommend the course Your Deceptive Mind from The Great Courses. Over the course of 24 lectures, Dr. Stephen Novella investigates how our brains work to process information and misinformation how we can learn to separate science from the pseudoscience that surrounds us every day, and how we can become stronger critical thinkers. I've followed Steve's work for a long time. And this course, in particular, I feel, brings together all of his strengths, his ability to distill down complex topics so that all of us can understand them, but not to shy away from the tough questions. You'll love watching Your Deceptive Mind, and The Great Courses is giving our Inquiring Minds listeners a special limited-time offer. Order this digital video course and get 85% off the regular price. That's $185 savings. And you can start watching it instantly. This incredible deal is only available for a limited time and only by going to thegreatcourses.com slash minds. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash minds. That's thegreatcourses.com slash minds. I think you could you could make the same uh, point for why lip syncing in musicians is like, you know, really abhorrent to the audience, right? Even though like the actual sound waves hitting your ear are the same, if not better, if they're lip syncing, right? Because it's a more perfect uh, performance and it's still coming through the speakers. So it's not like you're getting a direct line uh, to the artist. It's still being 
distorted by all this amplification and so forth. But if we find out that they're lip syncing or if we find out that, you know, that, that this is not a real performance, it's we feel betrayed. Yes, we feel betrayed. I think that's a wonderful analogy. You know, um, another interesting thing has to do with perfect reproductions that aren't forgeries, that aren't lying to anybody. There are now three-dimensional prints that are being made of Van Gogh paintings at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. And they have the same texture and the same thickness that the original paintings do. And they are, I haven't seen them, but they are supposedly nearly indistinguishable. I was recently in Amsterdam and I tried to go see them, but I couldn't find them. They were actually not in Amsterdam. Um, These are being sold to people and they claim that people want to buy them because they can't afford a real Van Gogh in in their living room. I think an interesting thought question is, if the only way I could see a Van Gogh was by looking at the three-dimensional print, I'd be happy to do so. But if you t- if you gave me a choice of going to the Van Gogh Museum or the museum with the 3D prints, and they were equally accessible to me, I don't think anybody would choose the 3D prints, even though they're indistinguishable. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why these kind of virtual reality uh, visits to art galleries are, are never going to replace the actual art gallery. <laughs> Absolutely. Because you can look at any work of art anywhere in the world on your computer screen. And it's just not the same. Why, why bother? Why are people still going to art galleries? It's the same with concerts. Why don't people just listen to high fidelity recordings of music in their homes? Yeah. I mean, I mean, what, you know, there I could, I could argue, well, cause it's not going to be exactly the same, but like the Mona Lisa, you go to, you go to the Louvre to see it. And like, there's like a, a, a three people in front of you <laughs> blocking the view, you know, it's like, it's not as good an, as an experience as if you pulled up a perfect, you know, reproduction on a, on a, you know, very high resolution screen. And yet it doesn't compare. The experience doesn't compare. Exactly. And, you know, with music, you say it's not the same, but I was recent, recently watching a live concert on television and it was fantastic because the, the camera moved it was a it was a performance by Lang Lang of a um a, a Mozart piano concerto and it was fabulous because you could see get close-ups of his fingers and his face and the other instrumentalists and you could never do that if you were sitting in the concert hall and it is exactly the same as what the people in the concert hall was here were hearing because it was live but it's just not the same yeah no no you're exactly right you're exactly right so that kind of gets me to this question that I've been kind of struggling with which is you know, what does it mean to have soul as a singer <laughs> or as a musician? Uh, because, you know, we kind of, it's one of these things where, you know, we we know it when we hear it, it's hard to define, and it doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to do with perfection or with beauty of sound or anything like that. And, and it makes me wonder if like this kind of essentialism is another way to think about soul. Do you think maybe it does have to do with beauty of sound though? I mean, it has, seems to me it has something to do with how expressively a performer plays. Yeah, but but you could like you could argue like Louis Armstrong for example does not have did not have a beautiful voice, but he had a lot of soul. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, because he was such a fantastic personality. Yeah, and you know, you listen to him he, you know, he sounds like a frog if you've never if you've never you don't know and that but then but then there there are some pieces that he does that you just like nobody could have done it better. Right. And that's it's because we know it's Louis Armstrong. So we don't mind the fact that it's not it doesn't sound perfectly melodious. But if you look at I'm thinking about child prodigies in music. They're technically excellent. 
and everybody thinks they're fantastic because they're eight years old and they're performing like a like a little adult. But most of those child prodigies never make the leap to being a major creative performer, and that's because the skill of learning a of being a child prodigy is to master something that's already been done and to master it in the same way. Um, but the skill of being a major new performer is to do something in your own way, in your own expressive way. And that's a very different kind of ability and most never make that leap. Now, Yo-Yo Ma made that leap, but most child prodigies get forgotten because they have technical perfection, but no soul. Yeah, that's especially true for singers. I mean, I often get sent, you know, recordings of 10 or 12 year olds, especially girls, you know, sounding like a mature opera singer. Um, and people say, look, isn't isn't she fabulous? And she is fabulous. But that doesn't mean she's going to have a career as an opera singer, because it, as, as you said, it's a very different um, skill, ultimately. And yeah, and what makes them the great prodigies is not going to necessarily translate into becoming great musicians. And, you know, and yet there's this kind of you know, what, if they do maintain that sound and like, you know, if you have someone like um, Charlotte Church, for example, singing the way she did when she was 10, when she's 30, people aren't that impressed. It's the same sound. Right. Exactly. It's the same thing in the visual arts. You have visual arts prodigies who are able to draw highly realistically. If you saw some of their drawings, you would, would not believe it because no ordinary adult could draw that way, that well. They are like optical realists, but that's not what the art world wants today. So they are, they may be very good scientific illustrators, although we don't even need scientific illustrators anymore with cameras. Um, they're just not, they're going to be forgotten. They might be good at teaching people how to draw, but they are not going to be um, known on the, uh, in the art world because that, there has to be a mesh between what the person can do and what the art world wants. And these optically realistic paintings don't have a lot of soul. Yeah. And it kind of gets me to this kind of the, the, um, industry of the art world, uh, which, you know, people like Banksy uh, and others have sort of started to rebel against. I mean, I guess people have been rebelling against it since the beginning of art. <laughs> it's not really a new thing to rebel. Um, but it does seem like, you know, one of my favorite films is, is one called Exit Through the Gift Shop, uh, which sort of tells the story of a of an artist who, you know, is trying to be um, you know, it's basically documenting the story of another artist, but then you realize that the that that the you know, there's a there's a twist there where it's actually his art that we're talking about. But there's a sense that, you know, commercializing your art is a key feature of being a successful artist in in today's world. Right, and that's um, not how artists are trained. They're not trained to market themselves. So there's a real clash between what you're learning in professional art school and what you have to do as soon as you get out. And uh, I think a lot of artists don't make it because they don't know how to market themselves. And it's it's very unfortunate that that's what they have to do. And I wonder if that gets back to sort of this intentionality. If you're creating art just to make money, is that less attractive to those of us who are consuming the art? Well, first of all, a lot of uh, our most famous artists are getting a fortune from their art. But can we I don't think that necessarily means they're doing it just to make money. But if we start to believe that they are just commercializing themselves, and there's one particular artist I have in mind that I think does that. I don't know if I should name names. Can I name names? Sure. Yes, I okay. did. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that Jeff Koons is commercializing himself. And it seems, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me that he's not really an artist in his heart and that he's just ma making art to make money and be famous. 
I could be totally wrong, but that's my belief about him. And I think that if it affects the way I look at it, I think this is just glitz. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I feel like there are a lot of Jeff Coombs, like, uh, you know, gimmicky art coming out, you know, more and more. Um, and, and yet there are people like, you know, I mentioned Banksy already, but um, there are other artists who you know, really kind of push back against the commercialization of the art, most famously, you know, Banksy destroying uh, one of his art pieces during an auction. <laughs> right. Though so then if you're going to be really cyn- uh, cynical, you could say, well, maybe he's doing that so that his next, next work will be worth even more. Sure. Yes. And also it's the experience right now he's created, uh, you know, now, yeah. So people will be flocking to auctions for the next Banksy experience. Yes, Exactly. <laughs> Uh, do you think of Damien Hirst as gimmicky, putting a dead shark in a tank? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I did when he first came out, and and same thing with um, was it Tracy Eamon, uh with the sort of soiled bed, um, and you know, but but I feel like and Marcel Duchamp with the urinal, I feel like there are you know a lot of examples of this, but at the same time, there are also examples of people who are still kind of they're evoking emotions from us. And and actually that was something that I wanted to talk to you about, which is that sometimes those emotions, especially in some of these more recent contemporary artists are not positive. Like, you know, looking at a soiled bed, looking at the, you know, the shark, like it, it looking at even the, the urinal, it kind of, it, it makes you sick. Exactly. <laughs> you and they want to make you sick. Yeah. But they also are trying to do something else. They're trying to shock you about what you, wh- where you think the boundaries of art and non-art are. Certainly that was uh, Duchamp's, intent to say, uh, and also um, Andy Warhol, when he did the Brillo boxes, which are identical to what you can find in the store, it's saying, it's a comment on what our society considers art and non-art, and it's trying to expand uh, what we, conceptual art in general is trying to expand our conception of what should count as art. So why in those cases when the art makes us feel bad, do we actually continue to value it? Oh, that's a that's a question that has actually gotten a lot of uh, research going recently. Um, why is it that we that we flock to tragedies? Why do we read fiction that makes us weep? Um, why do we go to horror movies? And why do we look at um, paintings of Picasso faces where the faces are totally distorted? Or why do we look at Goya's firing squad painting? If we were looking at these in real life, we would run a million miles away. We would be horrified. We would be disgusted. We would be freaked out. But we know it's fiction, or we know we're entering into the imaginary world of a work of art. And so we really do respond differently. And there have been studies that shown that the very same stimulus is responded to more positively, if it's believed to be a work of art. There was a study done um, by somebody in Europe named Winifred Menninghaus, and he took images that were kind of disgusting, like worms uh, or horse dung. Um, and he asked people, and he told one group of people, these come from a hygiene book. So they're like scientific illustrations of things that are infected. And the other group were told, these are images from a photography show. And people were asked to rate their emotions and also how gross they thought the images were. And it turned out that people agreed in both groups. They were equally disgusting images. But they also, in the art group, they had more positive emotions along with negative ones. So it was a mixture of positive and negative, whereas in the hygiene group, it was just negative. And if you ask people, if you turn to music for a minute, if you ask people to listen to very, very sad music, 
and you ask them what they feel, they feel sad, but they also feel nostalgic. That's the most common thing that's reported. And they feel moved. And nostalgia and feeling moved are actually rather pleasant things to feel. So when you're feeling, when you're, when you're looking at or experience a work of art that has negative content in it, you don't feel as negative as you would if you were approaching that same kind of stimulus outside of a work of art. Yeah. So I, I want to kind of delve a little bit more deeply to this, this question of being moved, um, especially sort of by music, since that's, you know, my own personal interest. I mean, it is something that we use as a judgment of whether or not the music is good or that we like it, right? Is how, how moving we found it. And, you know, I guess I, I you know, what, what do we know about this kind of feeling of being moved? Uh, can we, can we define it? What is it? Where does it come from? What What are the conditions under which we tend to feel it? Well, I do think you're absolutely right that we judge art by how the, the, the more moving a work of art is, the more we think it's great. That's probably the most important thing for judging, not whether it's beautiful, not whether it's technically perfect, but how moving it is. That's what makes it great to us. And being moved means feeling very strong emotions whether they're negative or positive, but the, the actual feeling of being moved is actually shown to be a pleasant feeling. And one really interesting study that was done uh, on visual art showed that while people don't agree at all about which works move them, if you put people in a brain scanning machine, if an MRI, uh, and do MRI scans, you find that when people are looking at art that they say moves them a lot, an area of the brain called the default mode network is activated. And that area of the brain is has been associated with introspection. So this is somewhat of a leap, and we really do need more research there, but it looks as if when we're very moved by works of art, we start to introspect about ourselves. The same kind of re reproducibility of uh, across people, it happens when people get the chills from music. So, you know, you can see... Um, sort of this, the brain signature of getting the chills. Now, people will differ in terms of which songs give them the chills, but in terms of what their brains look like when they're getting the chills from music, there's a lot of similarity. People do get the chills from music. And it's really interesting that people do not report getting chills from visual art. And people also report peak emotional experiences from music, as well as from things outside of art, like looking at nature, or holding a newborn baby, those can be peak emotional experiences. And you rarely hear people reporting that when they're looking at a painting, for example, that they're having a peak emotional experience. They might feel moved and they might feel interest, but they don't feel as emotional. And I've never heard anybody say they got the chills from visual art. All the research on chills comes from research on music. And I've thought a lot about why this is. Why are we less moved by visual or less emotionally aroused by visual arts? And my best guess is that when we're listening to music, we're completely surrounded by it. We can't escape from it. We can't just turn away from it if we're sitting in a concert hall um, or if we have our, our headphones on. And, and it envelops us. And we also want to move to it. And the feeling of wanting to move to music, physically move, is actually makes us m more involved. And when we're looking at works of art, how do we usually do it? We walk into an art museum and we look for one to two seconds at each painting. And sometimes we just take a selfie of it 
of us standing next to it, or we just take a picture of it without ourselves in it. Or sometimes we hardly even look at the work, we read the label. So we're actually not giving the visual arts a fair shake. I um, have made my students go to an art museum and look at a painting for one full hour and write down everything they're thinking and feeling. They protested mightily at having to do this, and they thought they'd be terribly bored, but it turns out they got into a kind of state of flow, and they didn't even notice the time passing, and they saw more and more things. Even so, though, they didn't report powerful emotions. They didn't report feeling like crying. But people often report that to music. So it seems to me a more emotional art. So I want to remind our listeners that um, Ellen's book, How Art Works, A Psychological Exploration, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Um, Ellen, before we leave this topic, I want to ask you if you have any advice for parents who either have a prodigious child or want to introduce their children to art. Um, what do you think is kind of the, the best use of art when it comes to children? Oh, that's a great question. I happen to have three grandchildren who live in New York City, and almost every weekend their parents take them to an art museum. And I think that is so fantastic because these kids are getting a real experience just looking at paintings, and they take them to uh, exhibits which have great big works of art. Um, they went to the Warhol show at the Whitney. They went to the Hockney show at the Met. Um, and the kids have started to love it. So take your kids to museums. Don't assume they'll hate it. Don't make them look at everything. Pick out a few things and have them look at them and talk to them about it. That's one thing I would really strongly urge. Um, the other thing is if you have an art artistically gifted child, I have studied gifted children in, in visual arts and in music and in other areas, children who are really child prodigies. And sometimes parents write to me and they say, all my child wants to do is draw and he doesn't have any friends. Um, when he invites friends over after school, he just wants to draw them. What should I do to make him more normal? And I always say, your child is not going to be normal because your child is atypical. Prodigies are not typical. And you have to let your child revel in what he or she loves to do. These children have a real rage to master. Um, they just want to practice in the domain in which they have high ability. And that's okay. Let them do that. Um, don't put them on the public stage and say, look at my prodigy, because that can only set up a prodigy for uh, failure later on when that child doesn't make the leap to be a major creative artist, a famous artist. But Give your child good art materials and allow them to do what it is they love. That's for prodigies. I would say that for all children, though. All children love to make art. It's too bad that all adults don't, but somewhere we lose that. But don't give your kids um, cheap materials if you can. Give them really nice colored pencils or paints and nice paper um, and encourage them to just draw. Don't tell them what to do. Just let them let them draw or suggest that they draw from observation. Kids can also draw wonderful things from observation. So this this kind of question of, of intentionality and essentialism and, you know, the assistant uh, also comes to kind of, you know, the I love it, honey, but is it art? <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, if, you're, if your four-year-old child can make the same painting that is hanging in a museum, you know, what does that say about the painting, you know, or about how we consume art? 
Well, first of all, I would say your four-year-old cannot make the same painting. You may think your four-year-old can, but actually your four-year-old cannot. You know, the typical, um, you often hear people say at a modern art museum, oh, my kid could have done that. And this is a way of deriding abstract art and thinking that it's just a fraud. We were really interested in whether people could tell the difference between abstract expressionist art by famous masters like Hans Hoffman or Jackson Pollock um, and Willem de Kooning, or between works by such artists and works by four-year-old children and works by animals, elephants, monkeys, and chimps. They have been given paintbrushes by experimenters, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, they make markings on a page, and often the markings look strikingly like what young children do, and the, what young children do look strikingly like some abstract expressionist works, like Cy Twombly or Hans Hoffman. And we decided to pair works by great artists and works by either children or animals, and see whether people could tell the difference. And we didn't label them. We just said, which one do you like better for each pair? Or which one do you think is the better work of art in our first study? And lo and behold, we found that people can tell the difference. They actually, two-thirds of the time, so it's not 100%, but two-thirds of the time, which is significantly above chance, people select the one by the artist rather than the child or animal. And then we asked people, um, if we, we presented them to people one at a time and we simply said, some of these are by artists and some of these are by children or animals, you decide in each case. And again, what we found is two thirds of the time people are correct. Um, we even found that if we mislabeled the works, so we told them that the Hans Hoffman work was by a child and the child's work was by a, a famous artist, even then people didn't go with the label they went with a work of art, and two-thirds of the time, they said the work by the artist, which was mislabeled as by the child, was the better work of art. We then tried to figure out what is it that is allowing people to make this discrimination. And we had people rate, people, completely new people, rate each painting without telling them some were by artists and some were by children and animals for how intentional they, they looked. And what we found is that the ones by the artists had higher intentionality ratings. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. And another thing that we found is that when people make mistakes, because remember, they're only correct two thirds of the time, when they misjudge a work by an artist as a work by a child, that work had gotten low intentionality ratings. And vice versa, when they misjudge a work by a child as by an artist, that had gotten high intentionality ratings. And the final thing I'd like to say about this is that a computer scientist named Lior Shamir called me up one day and asked me whether I could give him my stimuli because he wanted to see whether um, his computer could learn to make the same discrimination. And the way this is done is you feed the computer examples and, the, and you teach the, com the computer learns by trial and error to distinguish two bodies of work, the work by the artists and the work by the children and animals. And then you give them new works and they discriminate. And the question was, can they discriminate? And do they do respond like humans? And the amazing thing is, they also got them correct two-thirds of the time. They, the computer, got it correct two-thirds of the time. And they made the same, the computer made the same errors as uh, adult humans made. So there really is something that we perceive in 
abstract expressionist art that differs from work that looks strikingly similar, but underneath it all, we can tell the difference. So whenever you hear somebody say, my kid could have done that, you can say, no, research has shown that your kid could not have done that. (laughs) Science proves you wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ellen Winner, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.